what is literature? For much of Western history, the word simply designated educated writing or discourse, a meaning it still retains. However, since the turn of the 19th century, literature has usually meant imaginative writing. And some kinds of literature, like the genre of romance, is more, shall we say, literary than others, more rooted in imaginative flights of fancy. Romance sort of demands and affords what I call in the book a kind of play that I think is part of a very important part of the reading and aesthetic experience more generally. For me, that is an essential aspect of human well-being. We'll be talking today with Scott Black, professor of English literature and chair of the English department at the University of Utah. Professor Black is the author of Without the Novel, Romance and the History of Prose Fiction, published in 2019 by the University of Virginia Press. And he makes a compelling case that literature, especially in its most playful, most unrealistic, most imaginative, most romantic forms, is precisely what we need today. I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast, and now our conversation with Scott Black. So uh, welcome, Scott Black, to uh, this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast. Uh, I will say to our, our listeners, um, we had arranged, Scott teaches at the University of Utah, just up the road, about 45 miles or so. We'd arranged to have Scott come down and present uh, some of this work to our faculty and students at the Humanities Center, but alas, pandemic means podcast. Uh, thank you, Scott, for your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry I can't join you in person, but this is a second best option. Second best option. Yes, we can maybe work on the first best option uh, after a vaccine or something. So we'll get Great. that figured out. Um, now, you published uh, a book about the narrative genre of romance. It's a book I find, it's right here without the novel. Um, it's a book I find witty and insightful and thought provoking. And I'll ask you about romance, uh, obviously, in a moment. But first, and prompted by your book's title, I want to begin someplace just a little different, and that's with the novel. Um, why not write about the novel? And, and why announce in your title that that is precisely what you are not doing? Right. Um, I wrote this book. I've been thinking about this project for many years, um, and it comes out of my sense that when we talk about prose fiction in the field, and this is, you know, this is a professional book for literary critics, for historians of the novel. And they're called historians of the novel because when we think about prose fiction, we think about the novel. That is, it's not an exclusive um, assumption, but it's, it's pretty close to it. For us, prose fiction means the novel and that comes with a set of assumptions. It comes with some baggage and it comes with some leading questions for us that guides our work in particular ways. So what I wanted to do is sort of suggest from the very, very beginning on the title page that I'm gonna, this is gonna be an experiment in literary history and literary criticism that brackets that term in order to think about what we could see if we're not only thinking in terms of the novel. Great. You know, we years ago, I, I, I've been at BYU now for about 20 years, and this is my first, it was my second or third year here, maybe my first year, 
Uh, I remember reading an article by a critic, uh, a scholar, literary scholar, Terry Castle at Stanford, who was saying, enough already with the 18th century novel. We got it. We did it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it seems like 20 years later, we're still right there. <laughs> so so would, you say, would you say that your work is uh, timely because it's about time we talked about something other than the novel when we talk about prose fiction? Or is it timely because there's something about romance that makes this moment particularly conducive to that kind of inquiry? That's a good question. And I want to say yes and yes. Um, I do think that as a field, we are we remain committed to the realism, which is what the novel stands for, in a way that is surprising to me after all this time. Um, I do think sort of at our moment in the history of criticism, this is an apt moment for that, because there's suddenly interest in post-critical, post-historicist ways of reading, you know, started largely through Sedgwick and queer studies. And I think those are really interesting conversations that have opened up new possibilities. I want to say one other thing about where we are right now. I, I really admire Amitav Ghosh's book, The Great Derangement. And I take that as another way to think beyond the novel. For him, you know, that book, as I'm sure you know, and a lot of your listeners know, is, you know, asking asking about what else we could do to explain the Anthropocene, which is a word I don't particularly like, but it gets the point. And he says the novel is a modern, social, human-focused genre. And I think that's exactly right. So he's trying to ask what, you know, what other genres would give us a different purchase on those kinds of climate-related questions. My answer to Ghosh is we already have plenty of genres that do that, and we don't need new ones. We need to go back to old ones. And that's what my book actually advocates. That's really, that's a compelling way to put it, uh, Scott. You know, Ghosh, um, one of the things he points makes in his book early on, I mean, this is not a podcast about that book, but he says almost that, that we thought in terms of realism and we kind of made things very human-centered and narrowly focused on individual humans makes the novel partly to blame for the patterns of thought that have given us the Anthropocene. Or at the very least, it certainly has not given us a solution to the problem. We need other ways to imagine the world around us that aren't focused on those kinds of categories. So I guess that takes us to the genre of romance. Uh, You make a number of provocative observations about romance in your book, that it's uh, formed of and at the seams of time, uh, you say early in your introduction. You say it talks, you talk about how it amounts to a release from the pressures of ordinary life, that it uh, situates itself between story and truth, between epic and novel. Is there an easy way, is there any easy way to define romance? That's a very good question, and one I've asked myself many times over the process <laughs> of this book. Um, the simple answer is not really, although you know my book makes multiple stabs at it in the same way that the novel is really a bucket category. And I think all interesting categories are bucket categories. And the debates about these genres, these novels, these modes of both reading and writing our debates about what the category means, that's really productive. So I don't think romance is an exception to that. I think it is, it can mean many, many different things. A couple things that I take it to mean, let me start just backing up a little bit. I had a question as I was writing this book, whether I should talk about 
um, the novel in a narrow sense or a wide sense. Narrow sense would be sort of modern realism, sort of really, you know, with the 19th century great realists as the apogee of the novel or something. Or should I talk about the novel as we often do, just as a synonym for prose fiction? And I decided to go with the more narrow definition and then actually argue that we need to recognize other genres outside the novel rather than you know, a wider account of what the novel is. I think that's been done and I don't think it's gotten far enough, it hasn't gotten wide enough. Mm -hmm. So I picked romance simply because it is the other of the novel in histories of the novel. You know, the novel evolves as a realistic form against romance. And this is Michael McKeon's argument. This is become absolutely a staple of novel criticism going back, you know, really to the beginning of theorists of the novel, the beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, romance is the novel's other. I wanted to think about that in its own affordances, in its own structures, in its own demands, as well as the sort of literary history that would give you. Great. I, you know, oh, sorry. Things in terms of the sort of, to get back to your question about time, the novel is a sort of modern genre that thinks about time in a linear fashion, thinks about time progressively. Um, I think the romance does not do that. I think I understand the romance is always returning and always already returning to earlier forms and sort of replaying them for a contemporary audience. Great. I, I'm going to ask you a bit later, um, if we have time permitting, about more about a couple of things you said there. Uh, it's 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 um, it's a it's a compelling way to frame what this genre is. You take just one uh, phrase you used that the romance is the other of the novel. Um, from henceforth, when I go quoting definitions of romance, I'll go to your book. Uh, but for the last 20 years, when I've quoted definitions, I've gone to Ian Duncan's 1992 book, uh, Modern Romance and Transformations of the Novel. He has one short little capsule definition. I'm curious if, what you like about this and what you think uh, needs to be expanded on in this kind of definition. Um, he calls romance, and I'm quoting here, the essential principle of fiction. It's difference from a record of reality of everyday life. So for Duncan, the romance is kind of the other to everyday life, the other to the real. You said the other to the novel. Those are similar, but maybe not the same claim. Uh, do you like his definition? I like his definition, and I would actually argue they are the same claim in as much as the novel claims to be the genre that represents ordinary life. Okay, great. Thank you. His, you know, his sense that this is the genre of extraordinary fiction, that sounds to me exactly right. And I admire Duncan's work very much. So Yeah, Ian's <laughs> terrific. Yeah. But this this book though is fantastic. I think Ian will cite your book in in in, in um in his own work. Uh, the question I have about about romance when we talk about romance, are we talking about uh, a genre that's specific to itself or kind of like a, a function of difference? I mean, I mean you could mm -hmm. imagine novels as being realistic unless you're talking about history and suddenly novels look wildly frivolous and romantic. So is, 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 this, is the definition of romance one you want to bring attention to a certain few texts that are romances or is it a way of approaching how we read prose fiction? I think the latter. I think, you know, categories like realism categories like romance 
are probably closer to modes than genres. Um, I do, you know, in my own shorthand, I think about modes as habits that are very trans-historical. I tend to think about genres as historical moments in the realization of particular modes. So in those terms, romance is a mode that has multiple instantiations. I do think there's a signature sort of way of realizing romance, and it does have to do with one of the sort of really fundamental aspects of romance. Romance is always about some kind of extraordinary intrusion into ordinary life. Paradigmatically love, but also throughout literary history, love stories. Yeah. And it's that sort of play. So that for me is one of the real sort of central dynamics of romance. And what it's what give ro gives romance its circularity and its sort of tension between time sense that you're no longer really living fully in the world you were, which is the experience of erotic love. It's the experience of all kinds of love. And I would argue it's the experience of reading in an absorptive way. Uh, that's great, Scott. Um, this may be uh, an obvious question, given some of the uh, compelling ways you've already talked about romance, but um, why, why do you value romance as a category, as a genre, as a mode? And do you think that we value it differently today because of our place in history than readers of hundreds of years ago? Or is this really a kind of valuing that is consistent across time? I think it is something that's important and consistent across time, um, existentially, for readers. I think that at our particular moment of the history of criticism, we don't recognize it enough as professional critics, as professional teachers, as well as researchers. So one of the reasons I value it is because romance sort of demands and affords what I call in the book, a kind of play that I think is part of a very important part of the reading and aesthetic experience more generally me, that is an essential aspect of human well-being. So for me, this is something that I think we should recognize and talk about professionally. Right. I think it's something in our culture, American culture 2020, we have squeezed into almost no space at all. And I think we desperately need to. When we think about play in America, we think about games and competition, the kind of play I'm talking about, the kind of absorption that I talk about in the book, especially at the end, is not that. It's not competitive. It's on the model of childhood play. It's a chance to disassociate yourself from your ordinary experience. And I, find, I for me, that's really important. I think it's important for people in general. Yeah, one of the things I love about your book was its discussion of play. It's a, it's, it's very well done. You you go back to one of the important sort of uh, theorists of play in the 20th century, D.W. Winnicott, right? And but you also kind of elaborate beyond Winnicott and talk about play in a number of other contexts. Um, I, I, and, and you also have this great image, uh, maybe that can build on that a little bit early in the book. It's, it's from Georg Simmel, if I said that correctly, <laughs> uh, um, about the notion of, like, of an island. Uh, can you explain what that image means, uh, romance in relation to islands, or is that too specific a question for an interview like this one? No, it's a good, I mean, it's a good question. You know, there, there's, there are several people that I, you know, depend on heavily in this book. 
Um, Winnicott is absolutely crucial for my thinking. I adore Winnicott. Well, conceptually, I also just like his prose. Yeah. Um, he is one of the plainest of writers, and I wish I could do that too. Um, <laughs> Zimmel has been very important to me as well. Um, and, you know, Zimmel, my discussion of Zimmel is in, rela in relation to his essay and his ideas about adventure which are spaces outside of ordinary life, and for him, paradigmatically erotic as well. But they're spaces that are self-contained, removed from ordinary life, yet, he says, touch us at our core in some important way, and give us a way to recognize that we are not only ourselves. And it's that sort of, that sense of a dissociation of yourself which I think is really important. It's important for Zimmel. It's what adventure gives you. I connect adventure with romance. Those two things go together. You know, Scott, um, Walter Scott, as you know, um, Ty makes extraordinary adventures his foundational conception of romance. I use sort of Zimmel to suggest one of the existential aspects of adventure and then later, you know, I associate that with Winnicott's notion of play, which is also the sense of a chance to dissociate, to no longer be yourself. And, you know, we're at a moment where that doesn't resonate. Everyone is desperately, and I really mean desperately committed to being and becoming and defending themselves. This is a sign of crisis, but that's not all we can or should do. And to only do that, I, I think it's um, deeply reactive and unhealthy. That's really compelling um, as a thought, especially given, you know, kind of where we, I mean, we're, we're taping this in late September, 2020. Uh, there's a lot of tension uh, that we all feel and much of it is around uh, identity, who counts in our societies, right. you know, uh, what it takes to be able to count uh, those who are excluded from counting and all that puts a lot of pressure on being authentic and being oneself and counting for that which one is. And it's a different facet of human experience you're talking about here that's also really important and easy to forget in times of crisis. You mentioned Winnicott's beautiful prose. I, I actually think that your prose is great. I, there were several sentences that I loved in your book. Here's one I found kind of provocative. And maybe you could just tell us a bit more about this. Qu quote, the original scene of romance an old text on a new desk. <laughs> Explain. Yeah, this gets to, you know, what I was mentioning earlier, um, that sense of the recursivity of romance, the sense of the duality of time, the sense that, you know, romance brings together different times. Um, for me, romance, and, you know, my book discusses several, yeah. you know, highly literary self-conscious romances that are really about revisiting old stories. Um, you know, when we, so that's, that's what an old text on a new desk means. Yeah. And it also suggests, you know, the clerkishness of some of these romances. And by that, I mean, you know, the fact they're, they're scholars playing, they're, they're books by intellectuals. And I mean this, you know, Chrétien, Heliodorus, um, Cervantes, these are all scholarly books that are thinking about what it means to reread older and frankly residual or anachronistic texts at their particular moment. Um, there, you know, traditionally when we think about that, 
or, you know, in Quixote, the Quixote is the great example. When we think about that, we're thinking about sort of laughing that old stuff out of the world and reinventing um, a new form of fiction that won't make the mistakes of the past. But what I'm really interested in these highly self-conscious reflexive romances is how they both critique those older stories, but also adopt them. So there's both adaptation and adoption. They want their power still. And that's a feature of romance that I don't think conceptions of the novel get. Okay. Um, let me stay with that phrase for a minute. That, 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 that was a great des, uh, description you gave, explanation. But that idea of old texts on new desks, I mean, that's virtually every literary scholar's plight, <laughs> okay? Right. Uh, which, which, which is an interesting place to find oneself, right? You know, sort of visiting old texts in new ways, uh, making use of old forms that say both new things and old things in important ways right. we are tempted to forget uh, and do forget far too frequently. As a scholar writing about romance, did you ever feel yourself haunted by the spirit of those about whom you were writing? I mean, I'm curious <laughs> if you took like Lawrence Stern, the writer of one of these just great sprawling romances in the 18th century, just strange but iconic and really wonderful, uh, you know, Tristram Shandy. If Lawrence Stern were to write your book, would it be a wildly different book or would he write something a lot like what you wrote? Stern wrote my book, it would be a very, very different book. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, the really important thing in what you just said is using text for both new purposes, but also for old purposes. And it's that latter thing that I think we don't pay enough attention to. We want to adopt or, you know, these texts for our own uses. Um, I think that's a mistake. I think something's lost. And I do, you know, I don't think of myself as haunted by writers, but I do feel haunted by texts. And what that means is simply these texts that I read and that I love become part of me in some way. And sometimes when things are going well, if I can get out of the way enough, I can hear how they would respond rather than how I think I should respond. I think that's a great gift. I think that's what education should be about, putting all these strange voices in your head so that you're not only reliant on yourself, which is a pretty small little option. That's right. No, that's a very important point. But let me ask you about another passage in your book. It's one of the, I think, many uh, provocative passages of your book, and it's toward the end. Um, you say this, what's lost in a history of fiction defined too narrowly in realist terms uh, as, a, as a tool of historical or moral use are the pleasures of play which organize a genre of comic romance that's not designed to fit the world or fix the self, and that matters because it doesn't. Okay, that, that, that right there actually is a wonderfully Sternian line in its way. I, I, I really appreciate that. What you're getting at here is a kind of a, a category we could call, just for definition's sake, therapeutic criticism, right? L literature is something that does good in the world, that's good for us, et cetera. And you're pushing against that kind of idea, it seems to me, at least to a point. I mean, you're arguing for something like the usefulness of outwardly useless things um, or the value of texts 
that refuse to conform to our standard of values, right? Do I have that right? Um, is that what you're trying to get at uh, in this passage and uh, more broadly in your book? Yes, uh, you do have that right. It, for me, it's a really tricky point because I want my book to participate in, you know, the recent conversations about post-critical reparative criticism. Um, I do think reading is importantly therapeutic. And I wanna go back to something you said earlier. I'm, this is a book written next to questions of identity, not against them. Yeah, good point. You, you know, I really strongly wanna emphasize that because fiction does a lot of important things in the world. And I'm not arguing we should stop doing that or that we should stop thinking about that. I'm saying, as your comment put it, um, this is another thing that fiction does, and I think another important thing. So I am interested in reparative ways of reading, but I wanted to add with this book one more way of reading that wasn't strictly reparative in, say, a Sedgwick sense or in a Felsky sense or in the sense of Dora, Sum uh, Dora Sumner. For me, the benefit of play is not to become a better or wholer self or heal yourself, but quite the opposite. It's a kind of chance to not have to be a self. In other words, not put yourself at the center of the world. So I think you need to have a solid, strong core of self, obviously, to operate in the world. I think at a certain point, that is not enough because leaves you at the center of the world, that's not healthy. And it's also, I think, both politically and absolutely ecologically dangerous. So I'm arguing for a kind of therapy, but not in a psychological, <laughs> it's very tricky. Um, you know, the way I play this game is to sort of note that Sedgwick uses Melanie Klein against Freud, and then I use one of Klein's followers, Winnicott, against Klein. Right. Just to have a range of different psychological models. Yeah, it is a very subtle point. It's an important point, though, uh, and, and I think it's worth uh, underscoring. It seems, tell me if I'm wrong, it seems like in the climate we're in, in universities, especially in literary studies, or more broadly in the humanities, um, it, it can be, at least in places around the country, even the world, um, an increasingly hard sell to university administrators or state legislators that literature's function, uh, literature's usefulness is a function of its uselessness. You think about like the cases you make to students, right? Why you should major in English or in other, some other language or in a humanities category. Um, how do you make, do you try to make this argument to students or to administrators or is it better for a professor to to, to, to give people who already are inclined to feel or think that way better reasons why they should think as they do? I mean, are you preaching to the choir or to those who are skeptics when you make that kind of argument? That's a good question. And, you know, I am chair of my department now, yeah. um, and I do not make this case for the value, for the uselessness of English to the administration. It's, you know, we need to fight and claw for everything we can get now. And, you know, as you know, I'm sure here in Utah or public education in particular, 
workforce needs are the discourse that counts. So, um, you know, my argument is always that we do many different things at once. So I don't know if this is an argument. I think this is an important defense of reading of the humanities. I think the absence of this in our public culture has been really debilitating for us as a culture. But strategically, I don't know how to make that argument without making a much larger cultural argument about what American values are. I do think though, pedagogically, when I teach, I do talk in those terms. And one of the things I do in my own classes is to think about first readings and second readings. And, and this is one of the arguments I would make for us as a field of critics, of professional critics, is that we should pay more attention to the experience of reading rather than just the experience of reflection and critique. And I do talk about that with my students that the, you know, you're not gonna get lost in every book, but the ones that you do get lost in are gonna be the ones that are most profoundly important for you. And that experience, and I don't think it only has to be a book, it can be any, can be certainly any kind of art, but existentially there are many kinds of experience that lead to that kind of absorption which slows you down and gives you space to think in ways that you don't habitually think. That's really important. That's valuable. That's something that when someone experiences, they value. So to explain that books and English and literature can be one of the spaces you could do that is a valuable thing for students. I wish it were a valuable thing for administrators with their heads in a different place. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Um, we're talking again with Scott Black, uh, who is professor of English and chair of English department at the University of Utah. Uh, his book is titled Without the Novel, Romance and the History of Prose Fiction. It's an excellent book. Uh, we have it's been like five or ten minutes uh, still to go, Scott. You talk about a range of um, uh, really great texts and, and writers in the in the book. There's Heliodorus and there's Cervantes and Scott. And you devote chapters to uh, Lawrence Stern and Henry Fielding. And there's a chapter toward the end of your book uh, devoted to a big sprawling novel by Francis Burney right, called The Wanderer. And a lot of the qualities of romance that you associate with it and that you expound on in the book, adventure and love and weirdness and fun and imagination and both the errors and the importance of reading and more are all, uh, it seems to me, not characteristics that I often see associated with the romance. When you get to Bernie, though, you light on a couple that I found to be especially compelling because I don't see them as often. Uh, qualities of stillness and silence. Um, can you tell us why these are qualities of romance and are they qualities widely attributed to romance or is this really your, your insight? I don't know if it's an insight, but I think it's my idea. Um, I, one of the things, a lot of this thinking about stillness and silence in relation to romance comes out of that chapter. Um, I love The Wanderer. I think I'm one of the few people in the world who loves it. <laughs> Very few people who've read it, and those who have read it tend to not like it or not know what to do with it. It's a, it's a huge novel, um, and it's 
and nothing happens in some sense. A lot, there are a lot of actually really terrific comic set pieces. Bernie is one of the great, great comic writers in the English tradition. And she can do these brutal, absolutely black comic scenes like no one else. So I love that. But at the core of the novel is this woman who will not speak. I mean, she literally speaks, but she will not tell people what they need to hear from her. And the whole novel is sort of following this cipher through the world. And that's very frustrating to critics, especially feminist critics, when they were rediscovering Bernie. She is not a feminist hero. And there is a feminist hero in the book, but she's not the heroine of the book. So the book is full of puzzles. It's full of frustrations. I actually think it's intentionally frustrating in a way to get us to think about the value of patience, the you know refusal to judge, and the willingness to wait for time to unfold uh, answers. That's a much older sense of how we should be in the world. It's not what we think we should do. We're not, you know, <laughs> that's a profoundly unmodern attitude, but I think it's what Bernie's sort of both suggesting as a value, but also forcing us to do with this novel. So that started me thinking about um, these aspects of romance. I'll just quickly say, you know, that led me to, um, or it sort of dovetailed with my thinking about Winnicott, which again is a space of patience, not knowing, not doing, and most importantly, not reacting. So the waiting, the stillness, I think that's, that's the sort of core of the absorption that intense reading experience can give you. Call me crazy, but when I read it, you know what came to mind for me? I was thinking about these categories, and I, I, I love what, how you just characterized that novel um, and, and the importance of some of these things that you're bringing out. But stillness and silence, sitting with a book without thoughts of why it's useful or without judgments of its virtues or plausibility or why things happen, just going with the text, letting it move us, being with texts. It does conjure Winnicott. It also conjures for me something like mindfulness and meditation, which are things that we don't do very well, but figure that we should, right? So right. you do find some uh, some social energy around those things, knowing that they should be more a part of our life, even if they aren't. Am I crazy to see that connection, uh, or is it one that you also see? Oh, you're not crazy to see that. It's, that's very important to me, and that. You know, that is something that I do think this kind of absorption gets you. Um, you know, that's, I think in those terms as well. I think it's um, a kind of space that some of us have in our lives and value. Um, I think it's a space that we don't recognize culturally. I think it's a space that's almost completely absent from our professional field. And it shouldn't be, because I do think that reading can be a space of that kind of mindfulness. And I see that in Winnicott. He's not thinking in terms of mindfulness, but he's talking about a suspension between acting and reacting, which means between, you know, doing things and desire. 
So he's trying to think beyond sublimation. He's trying to think beyond activity. That for him is the essence of childhood play. And I think there's a lot of people who talk about childhood reading in those terms. And Winnicott really importantly says that remains a resource for us throughout the rest of our lives. And I completely agree with that. And I think reading should be a, a space for that for all of us, especially maybe for us who do it professionally and should not only read professionally when we read. Very good. I might just close here the interview by asking you a bit, uh, one more professional question based on your own experience. So for several years, uh, you were on the editorial board of PMLA, right? Which is the publications of the Modern Language Association. It's a, for those who don't know, it's an influential and far-reaching journal. Um, Did that experience and the exposure you had there to a wide variety of essays across several fields change uh, the kind of scholarship you wanted to write yourself? Uh, or, right, did it, in other words, did it give you a different view? And is this book partly a product of that view? That's an excellent question and an unexpected question. Um, I don't know if this book is a product of that. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and it, you know, you tend in your own little field to get sort of edgy and angry at the field because you feel like it's missing so much. Being on the PMLA board for those couple of years, it was fantastic because you, first of all, you're getting all the essays that have been read by a couple readers and they're almost always very good, even if you don't accept them. But the range of different kinds of work and the exposure I had to a much wider range of questions than I thought we were asking was incredibly gratifying. I felt so much better about the field of English and literary criticism after those couple of years. Um, because there's just a lot of really great work. I read a few really, really great essays that I would love to be able to write. Um, So I don't know if, I don't think this book comes anywhere close to some of those pieces, but I wish it could. (laughs) the, the, The ones that I really loved were the ones that, you know, were, Ah, they were really stylistically idiosyncratic and individual. And that's the lesson I sort of took. You, you know, it's an old writer's point. You have to develop your own voice. And I'm hoping at some point I can develop mine. But the ones, you know, the really, really committed people who are committed to saying what they wanted to say in their own voice, those are the essays, both for PMLA, but anywhere that really sort of grab you. Uh, I think this book comes awfully close to that. I think, I think this book is very much a, a book that when I read it, it sounded very much like you. And it sounded like a book that um, uh, has some very important things to say to uh, narrowly 18th century studies, more broadly to the study of prose fiction. It's, a, it's an excellent book, Scott, really is. Um, and this has been a great conversation. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to talk about the book. Our and I pleasure. Questions too. Our pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, Talk to you very soon. Nice to see you, Matt. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast. Think clearly, act well, appreciate life. This podcast is sponsored by the Humanities Center and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University and is produced and edited by Brooke Brown and Sam Jacob. 
The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by the Soli Chamber Orchestra and Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. If you're interested in other episodes of this podcast or want to know more about the BYU Humanities Center, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.